0: Heavenly Father, we are blessed to have this church, this particular body that you have called together and held together and guided over the years. We're probably not even aware, Father, of all the ways in which being a part of this fellowship has enriched and and strengthened us. And we hopefully are mindful, Father, of just how important study of your word is. And that today, as we embark on a new study in your, in your uh, seminal work of Genesis, that we will be particularly thankful and grateful for what is before us in this book, that we will make every effort as you give opportunity to be here and to be attentive. Or if we're not here for whatever reason, Father, you would give us other opportunities to, to stay engaged because, Father, we know that in any endeavor of this magnitude and, and presumably of, of a fair amount of time, We will see things come our way to distract us we'll see the enemy use different methods to keep us uh, out of the word and yet we know how important it is that we be in it so we just ask up front as we start you would teach us you would give us the motivation and the desire to remain in the teaching that you would uh, impress upon us where this teaching is to make a difference in our own walk and how we're to put it to work you convict us where we need to be convicted of things that are wrong in our life Whatever it is you intend to do, over whatever period of time you have ordained, I pray that you would be uh, impressing on us, just showing us so clearly why we are here and why it's important to finish this book so that we will give it the proper attention. And I ask, Father, that in my own walk as the teacher and as the one endeavoring to bring the word every week, that you would grant me, Father, the wisdom, the insight, the steadfastness, the humility to present this book properly pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, with any new study, I always try to take the the approach of an overview to give some context to the author and the time it was written and so on, even before we open up and begin to read the opening verses. And Genesis is no different. In fact, you could certainly make a case that there is no book in which the overview is more needed than in the book of Genesis. And that's partly because it's so distorted for the sake of many who don't believe it as literal. So let's begin at the beginning, Uh, the structure of the book, the the way the book itself is put together. Notionally, or generally, there's two parts to the book of Genesis. It's 50 chapters in the way it's divided up in our Bibles now. uh, As it was written originally, it was one work, actually, as you would see all of what Moses wrote from Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy. It was one big book, the book of Moses, the law. But as we have come to know it now and the way we study it, the book of Genesis, apart from the rest of the law, has been divided into ten chapters and within, or fifty chapters, and within those fifty chapters, it takes two large parts or two large sections. The first section runs from chapter one to chapter eleven. And in those opening chapters, God is describing how all things began, how the creation of the universe and the world began, of humanity and all that's in the world, and then secondly, how the nation or how the nations of the world were structured, how men moved outward from the garden and became the nations that populate the world today. That's the opening section of Genesis through chapter 11. From chapters 12 onward into chapter 50, the focus changes dramatically. The focus now is how God began the Jewish race and the nation of Israel. So the book of Genesis is one fifth, the way the world began, and four fifths, the way Israel began. How important is Israel to the nation, to God's plan for the world? That should tell you something.
1: Many would argue, and
0: I will certainly argue, that Genesis is the most important book in the Bible for num- numerous reasons. First, uh, some would consider it to simply be a book of stories. You've heard it probably taught in other places, certainly by the secular world, if nothing else, that it's a book of myth and story and allegory, stories like Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Noah, etc., Uh, Sunday school stories, as I sometimes describe them. But in reality, it is a work of history, and it is the most important work of history ever written. It's the foundation of all things that we can know in the world around us today. In this book, we will see the origins of matter, energy, life, marriage, family, society, morality, law, and even the seven-day week, which we take for granted. All of these things and many others began in the, the work that Moses wrote here. It is a book of firsts. If you were to keep count, and I would encourage you, if you have the chance as we study, to try to note these things as you go through the book. But it is a book of firsts everywhere you look. For example, you will find the first human beings, obviously, accounted in this book, the first marriage, the first birth, the first death, the first lie, the first trial, the first murder, The first case of self-defense, the first time that someone owns property, the first natural death, the first time rainfall ever takes place on the earth, the first time a boat is ever created, the first time nations are formed, the first time cities are built, the first time a calendar is ever established, the first examples of God's grace, the first covenant, and on and on and on. Everything that we take for granted today began in the book of Genesis. It's also more quoted, most quoted or more quoted in the New Testament authors before any other book except Psalms and Isaiah. So another way to say it is the third most quoted book, if you look at the New Testament authors, it's quoted literally by Christ himself at multiple points in Christ's ministry in the gospel. So if you have any question about how Jesus himself viewed the book of Genesis, it's self evident by Jesus' own words that he viewed it as a literal work of history, not as a Storybook or a book of myths. By itself, if all we had was this book and none of the other 65, Genesis by itself reveals everything we need to know about the person of God and about man's relationship to God. It's all here. It reveals God's character and his nature and his person, including the Trinity itself. It's all visible in the book of Genesis. We understand his purpose for the creation out of this book. And it explains everything we need to know about man and our relationship with God. It reveals why we have the problems we have, why we have the character problems we have, why, we, why the world has the problems it has. It explains and reveals our purpose for our very existence, which is a question everybody's asked at some point in time. Why do I exist? Why does, why does all of this exist? And it explains the reasons for our condition. Why is the world such a hard, mean, terrible place? Why do bad things happen to people? All of that is answered in the book of Genesis. It makes sense, in other words, of everything in life. That's a big promise. And I'll do my best to live up to it. Looking at the author, the the book is written by Moses. He wrote the Torah, or the law, somewhere around 1445 to 1405 B.C., while they were wandering in the desert, while the Jews were wandering. It was originally one work, but of the five books that we now consider the Torah, or this book of Moses, four of the five are written by Moses as his own eyewitness account of events from Exodus through Deuteronomy. That's, that's the life Moses himself experienced. This book, of course, is full of events that predate Moses' own life. So it's self-evident that Moses wrote this based on accounts that were presented to him. And depending on scholars you might consult, the, the view is that there were uh, somewhere between 6 and 13 family stories. You know how you all have family stories, some of which you would prefer not to share, but uh, you know the, the stories handed down from grandma or grandpa about what your great-great so-and-so did. Those family stories were clearly evident in Moses' recounting of the events prior to his life. Stories that were handed down primar- uh, largely by men like Adam, men like Noah. Do you know Adam died only a few decades before Noah was born? There was very few gaps between the the, the major events of Genesis, given the lengths of life that we see living in that time. So it would have been relatively easy for the the stories of all that we hear about in the book of Genesis to be handed down to the point at which someone like Moses would have received them and recounted them. And of course, never mind the fact that God in his sovereignty and in his power has the capacity to ensure that information flows as he desires it. But even just in simple man-made terms, There was plenty of opportunity as i mentioned earlier this is originally one work not five books you can see that actually in the way jesus spoke of it back in mark as an example one verse out of mark mark 12 verse 26 jesus said but regarding the fact that the dead rise again have you not read listen have you not read in the book of moses in the passage about the burning bush how god spoke to him saying i am the god of abraham and the god of isaac and the god of jacob That verse that he's quoting is out of the book of Exodus, of course. But did you notice that Jesus referred to the book of Moses, not the books? In the way the scrolls were maintained, it was considered one work. If you look at the events of the book, in terms of human history, it covers events from around 4,000 B.C., as best we can account for the genealogies, up to about 1,800. B.C. 4,000, remember you you count backwards in the B.C. time, right? So from 4,000 B.C. to 1800 B.C., that's the length of time captured by the book of Genesis. If you were to examine in the Bible an equally long period of history from 1800 B.C. forward, you would have to go from Exodus all the way to Revelation to cover the same period of human history, the same length of time. That's how long history is in the book of Genesis. The name, Genesis has an interesting story behind it. it, is taken from the Hebrew word toldat, toldat, which means generations. The book could also be divided not only by these two sections of chapters 1 through 11 and 12 through 50, but it can also be divided into the toldats, the generations of. You'll see that division coming quite frequently in the book, where you'll see the generations of Adam, and then you'll see the generations of Seth, and then we'll see the generations of so-and-so and and -and so-and-so. Those are the major divisions of the book in terms of generations. Or think of it as the family stories that I mentioned earlier. Those family stories that found their way down to Moses. Moses takes them and stitches them together in order. The toldot, though, in Greek, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which we call the Septuagint, that word toldot is translated into geneseos, and then we get genesis from that. The generations of, the generations of, the generations of. That's where the name comes from. So with that brief background, let's take a look at how the book opens in verses that are so common to us, we've probably heard them so often, maybe some of the meaning has started to fade. So we'll take our time with them. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving Over the surface of the waters. The heavens and the earth here refer to the physical earth and the atmosphere. This is not speaking about the heavens in which God Himself dwells. We're going to examine later in our study of Genesis why I'm saying that. But for now, I just want you to understand that this is an account of how the physical world, in fact, the whole universe, came into existence. It's not endeavoring to describe how God's own throne room came into existence. From the very first verse, in the beginning, God. Just from those four words, we learn at least four important things. Just from those four words. First, our world and everything in it had a beginning. There was a point before it existed, and then there was a point at which it came into being. Every man, as I would expect, since the time of Adam probably, has contemplated the question of where did everything begin? What was the beginning of all things? Even atheists pursue that question, and you know that because they have proposed theories about where things began, like the Big Bang Theory. So it's an eternal question, regardless of your view of deity. But even with secular answers, for example, like the Big Bang, there still is a question that those theories beg. And that question is, where did the stuff for the Big Bang come from? you still end up at the point of asking, was there a beginning to everything? And if so, what was before that? How can I understand what would be before everything I can understand today? The reason the unbelieving world has no answer for what came before everything is that they limit their sources of information. By choice, they limit their sources of information when they go to answer this question. They will only accept answers that can be taken from what they can observe from the natural world. That's their source for answers and they will not consider an answer outside the secular, outside the natural world. That's what a unbeliever is limited to by their own choice. And since we can only observe what already exists, then by that fact, we can never hope to learn what came before things existed we you have to seek your answer from a source that existed prior to the creation of all things if your question is what was there before all things but if i only seek the things that are to seek my answers from the things that are i'm limited but that in itself is the problem because if i'm going to do that if i'm going to seek knowledge about the question of where things began from a source that predates all things then i have to be able to acknowledge there is a source of all things and that source would imply an authority or a judge. The moment I am willing to agree or even consider that there was a source for everything that exists that predates the things that exist, I am acknowledging a higher power and I'm acknowledging an authority. And if I acknowledge there is a higher power and authority responsible for what exists, I'm also implicitly acknowledging that they have some authority over me and over the creation. You can't escape it. It implies that if everything had a beginning, everything had an author. And so the very fact that things like the Big Bang Theory never endeavor to explain how the original material itself came into being is proof that the hardened, unbelieving heart of the world is dead set against moving into territory that puts them into a conversation about deity. They refuse to broach that, to to go over that barrier. But then again, it also leaves them with nonsensical explanations or ones that just beg a question. That's the first thing we learn. The first thing we learn in those opening words are there was, in fact, a beginning, so therefore there is an author and there is someone who can be accountable or that we are then accountable to. The second thing we learn is if there is a beginning, it implies there will be an end. That there will be a point when what has been created will cease to exist. After all, if it hasn't always existed, why would we assume it always will? And of course, if you go to scripture, scripture affirms that view. 2 Peter 3, Peter 3, verses 3 through 7. Listen to what Peter says. And listen to it now in the context of this question. Will there be an end? Peter says, know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Now listen, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Peter says what we can imply from looking at verse 1 of Genesis 1. There was a beginning, and it's being, as Peter says, being reserved, kept, maintained for a future day in which by fire the earth will be judged and the world itself will go away. We know if you've read, Genesis, if you've read Revelation, you know that there is a point at which this heavens and this earth, the ones we see today, and again, the word heavens refers to the atmosphere, to the sky, to the solar system. That's all going away. To be replaced. The unwillingness to acknowledge the biblical account of creation begins with, as Peter says, an unwillingness to acknowledge there is a higher authority who holds us accountable. That is why the world will not accept the biblical account of creation. Revelation tells us that the world does indeed have an end, and as I mentioned it already, I'll just read one verse. Revelation 21, verse 1. John says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. In the beginning, things were made, and yet they are not eternal. The irony here is that we are eternal, but the world is not. Not this world. That's the complete opposite, by the way, of the unbelieving world's viewpoint on the matter. Their viewpoint is, their teaching is, that we are temporary, get what you can while you got it, once you're gone, it's gone, make the most of your life while you can, you only get to go around once, live, die, and be merry, or, you know, live, eat, be merry, for tomorrow you die. You know, that whole sense of what the world thinks, because you only have today, why worry about tomorrow? That's not true. There are, a con- there are consequences for who we are and what we believe and what we do, and they carry into eternity, as, we, as do we. But the world is teaching us that we are temporary, and yet the physical world is eternal. After all, it's been here for billions of years, and it will be here for billions more. From our limited point of view, that seems like eternity might as well be eternity. The irony is, Scripture teaches exactly the opposite. That's not the first thing, by the way, and not the only thing that the Scriptures teach that is opposite from what the world believes. The second thing Genesis 1-1 teaches us, first thing is that there was a beginning, there will be an end. The second thing that the opening line teaches us is that God existed before all else. In the beginning, God. In the moment that the beginning is defined and the creation process begins, God's already there. In fact, He's the actor, He's the author. He's already there. He was around before the physical creation even began. And therefore, the conclusion you draw from that fact is there is nothing in the creation that is equal to or as powerful as God. It cannot be. Can the painting challenge the painter? Can the sculpture ever contend with the sculptor? In our own experience, would we ever expect that our creation could rise to a point of challenging us? That's always one of the favorite sci-fi movie themes, right? The computer that takes over the world and defeats the people who created it. You know, that's the thought we always have. But in reality, that doesn't happen. Not in the full sense of what we're trying to imagine. It never comes to that. Nothing in creation can outlast God. Nothing in creation can contend with God. And when we therefore consider our plight and our circumstances and the things that make us uncomfortable or challenge us or try us, if their source is other than God, then they're no problem. Not in eternal terms, not for the one who's been made eternal and is a child of God. They are merely temporary and they are not happening apart from God's sovereignty. He is not powerless in the face of his own creation which would then imply that if we are facing trials and tests and difficulties, they are allowed by God's hand, they have some good purpose in mind for God in letting it happen. We have to seek for that understanding and not challenge God's authority. So the second thing is that God was there in the beginning and he is all-powerful over his creation. The third thing we learned is time itself is measured according to the origin of the creation, not by the origin of God's existence. This is a little harder to grasp, and I won't spend much time on it, but let me just see if I can make it simple in passing. Time is a part of God's creation itself. Time was created in the creation. So the passage of time did not exist prior to the creation itself existing. There's no way to date God. I don't mean date Him. I mean there's no way to put a date to Him. You can date Him, I guess. You can kind of, you know... Think about him for a while before you really decide to believe in him, if that's what the word might mean. But no, you, there's no way to put a date to God's existence. He wasn't in the beginning. He is eternal. There's no beginning or end to him. But if we were to try to put a date to creation, it didn't start until creation itself began. More importantly, the very existence of time being a feature of creation is an element that lets us know the beginning from the end. Another way to say it simply is that God ensures that time exists, So that we have a way to measure the progress of his plan. Time itself is a kind of revelation to us so that we have a way to keep track of what he's doing for our benefit in the course of the world. Once the end does come, the end of this world that he's created, time will have to take on a new meaning. It might not exist at all. Or if it does exist, it may exist according to something different than we experience now. It is an element to this creation. When this creation goes away, the time that it, that that uh, was brought to life in this creation will also go away. This is the kind of stuff that blows your mind in a physics class, right? So you're you're not ready for this on a Sunday morning. I understand. We'll we'll move on. Finally, the fourth thing we learned: the opening line of Genesis one one, those four words in the beginning, God, single-handedly contradicts six popular philosophies in the world today. For for example, atheism atheism would propose there is no god those first four words tell you god exists pantheism the belief that there is uh, god in the creation that the nature of the world is god trees are god the oceans god the mountains are god that the that the nature of the world itself that we worship the creation in other words itself is as god this says that god is distinct from his creation god existed and then the creation came into being they're not one and the same third polytheism polytheism is the belief that there are many gods responsible for what we see but in the hebrew the word created and the word for god the word for god is plural but the word created is singular we know it's plural because it's speaking of the trinity but the word created in the hebrew the verb is conjugated in the singular an act of a single godhead in other words not the act of many gods working independently. Fourth, there is a kind of worldview called radical materialism. And no, I'm not talking about the United States and our way of uh, spending money. There is a kind of spiritual view that says matter itself, this physical matter, is eternal. It never had a beginning. But of course, here we see matter had a supernatural origin, it had a beginning. Fifth, naturalism, this is evolutionism. The belief that creation took place over time, periodically through a process that's natural and and continual, this says that creation took place when someone, God, who is outside nature, intervened and made it happen. That's opposite of what evolution says. Evolution says nature itself evolved itself. The material itself produced its own movement forward. And then finally, fatalism. Fatalism is a belief that there is no God. There is simply a force. Think of it like the Star Wars theory. There is a force that's creating and pushing and making things happen. This says there is a personal God who freely chose to create. Now, moving forward now in the text, among those verses I read, those first two verses, there is in the Christian view, now I've been talking up to this point about how these opening words contradict worldviews of one kind or another, but even within the Christian family, there is a fair amount of controversy around these opening two verses, and as I go into them, I'm, I'm, I'm intentionally not examining them yet word for word and going through that. I'm trying to set the stage for what we're going to look at and what we're not going to look at, but just as a summary, there is the traditional view of how these two verses are intended to be understood. The traditional view says that verses one and two are a summary of what is to follow in the rest of the chapter. When you all took writing class, English class, literature, or or composition class, you would have been taught, I'm hoping, that a good paragraph or a good article or, or book begins with topical sentences, opening sentences that help the reader follow what you're about to go do. Well, that traditional view here says that's what Moses is doing here. Verse two then would describe the early starting point for God's work, and then verses three and later go on to describe the successive steps of creation as God moves forward in his plan, increasing the order and the complexity of what he's creating. So it would seem then, if you take the traditional view, that the opening line is just setting the stage for the purpose of the chapter and the book. The second line starts the process of creation. Then th- verses three and onward, just go down the detail of how that took place. There is another theory called the gap theory have studied this or heard of it in the past, the recreation theory, as some might call it. This looks at the the language in verses one and two. And the gap theory basically says this. Gap theory says, verse one is when the world itself was actually created. Everything in the world was created in verse one. And then verse two is God's judgment on the earth brought about by Satan's fall. So when Satan fell into sin. God, in judgment for that sin, kind of messed up the world. Took what was already created orderly and complete and made it formless and void. Another way to look at it is you've painted a painting. In verse 1, God painted the painting, stood back, he liked it. And then a little kid came along with a brush and a little paint and kind of marked it up. And the author of the painting looks at it and goes, well, that's not gonna do, it's all messed up. And he takes a rag and just starts, and then goes back at work again. That's the gap theory. The gap theory says there is a gap of time between verse one and verse two. Verse one, everything's made, Satan's in the garden, Satan's doing his thing, he's the chief cherub, he's wonderful, he's gorgeous, he's beautiful, and then he gets a little prideful and has a fall. Verse two, God judges all of that sin. Verse 3, he starts again. The recreation theory, in other words, that's where the name comes from. Now, why would someone propose that? If I'm t- to evaluate the traditional view against the, the gap theory, which one is true, Steve? How do I know which one I'm supposed to go with? Well, let me give you some reasons for and against the gap view, and then I'll tell you how we land at the end. The first reason for, the, the reasons for the gap view, for those who have it, Starts with the language of the text. In the first few words of Genesis 1, it's in Hebrew, it's areth hayat tohu bohu, which doesn't mean anything to us unless you know Hebrew. But in the way that those words are conjugated in Hebrew, it's a disjunctive, conjunctive, subject, verb. All right, well, I'm getting too technical, but where that goes is where you see that particular sentence construction elsewhere in the Bible, disjunctive, constru- conjunctive, subject, verb, That forces certain rules in Hebrew grammar. And everywhere else you see that pattern of Hebrew in the Bible, you would not translate the word created. You would translate it became. Became. So go back and read Genesis 1-1 with that thinking instead of the the way you may have heard it and the way I read it. In verse 1 then it would be, In the beginning, um, I'm sorry, this is verse 2, not verse 1, verse 2. The earth became formless and void. That would be the way some Hebrew scholars would insist this should be translated based on the way those words are conjugated in Hebrew. Well, if it's became and not was, well, became suggests it was something before. And that's where the gap theory starts to arrive. People start to say, well, maybe it didn't start in verse 1 or verse 2. Maybe it started in verse 1, and they start to consider what that might mean. And then they point to Satan's fall, which is described in Ezekiel 28. And there's some elements of Ezekiel 28 that seem to suggest that there was an earth that was previous to the one we know today. And they take that as another piece of the theory, and they sort of stitch that thinking together. That's about the extent of it. In other words, that's about as much proof or evidence I can offer for why someone might propose the gap theory. There really isn't much more to go on. So what what would I tell you if you didn't? want to support that theory. What are the arguments against it? A lot. <laughs> First of all, there is a similar structure in the language in the beginning of chapter two, and yet we don't take the view that they would propose when we look at chapter two. Second reason, Hebrew grammar would expect actually a different verb construct If it were describing items in a sequential order. In other words, if what they're saying is the earth was created, then it was made void because the guy did, uh, Satan did something bad, then it starts over again in chapter, in verse three. The Hebrew grammar for a sequential order is not present in the text. It doesn't suggest sequential. Third, earth and heavens are described clearly as beginning in verses six through ten. The earth and the heavens are said to originate in verses six through ten. Not be recreated, but originate. Number four, all biblical cross-references throughout the rest of the Bible say the earth was created in six days. Not created, destroyed, recreated in six days. They all talk about the earth itself coming out of nothing into existence in six days. In fact, you may know elsewhere in in the scripture when God gives the commandment for the Sabbath, his argument for the Sabbath is what? I took six days to create, and then I took a day off so you should take a day off that argues for the creation having only like required those six days and it argues for it being a one-time event. Lastly, and this is the one I rest on frankly for why I do not subscribe, subscribe to the gap theory. It is not the natural reading of the text, is it? It's not natural. If I had never proposed this theory to you, you would not be looking at the text right now saying to yourself, oh my goodness, there's a gap. It's not natural. It's It's an unnatural reading of the text that you have to convince somebody of. Friends, that's not how scripture works, not in my experience. The natural reading of the text almost always is the right reading of the text. So we'll look more at this issue when we get to the end of chapter 1. And by the way, I'll mention this here at this moment. One of the things I do when I teach Genesis as we get done with chapter 2 is present about a four, four and a half hour presentation, not on Sunday morning. Uh, at, another day, at another event, uh, on creation versus evolution. Well, we will go through in great detail the differences between the two views and primarily on what evolution says. We kind of use this study to understand what the Bible says. We'll use the four-and-a-half-hour session to go through all that the theory offers and look at it from a scientific point of view. Not saying it's wrong just because the Bible says that, although that's enough for me but actually looking at it as scientists, looking at what the Bible or what the the theory itself proposes and evaluating it fair and square on the basis of its own science. And we'll see what it says. And in that reading, we'll also look at the gap theory because honestly, one of the motivations for people to propose the gap theory in the first place is because there's a whole bunch of stuff they want to put into the gap theory. Into that gap of time, there's a whole bunch of things they want to stuff in there. For example, they would like to put millions of years of time And they would like to put dinosaurs and a bunch of other things so that they have a way to find a place in the Bible for what they refuse to let go of from the scientific community. And by the way, I'm not proposing dinosaurs didn't exist. They certainly existed. But the Bible tells us when and where, as opposed to what science tries to propose. The gap theory is most accepted by Christians who also believe in evolution. It's their way to reconcile the text of Scripture with something that they have been taught in school and feel silly rejecting. Because after all, everyone else believes it. It must be true. So when we look at the evolution versus creation, we'll come back to discussing the gap theory briefly as a part of that discussion. So let's look at the actual start of the creation process itself as we come close to finishing. I told you we can get done with this in six weeks. God begins creation, we're told, with an initial stage where everything is formless and void, with the Spirit hovering over the waters. Hovering in the Hebrew is rakaf, which literally means fluttering. Think of it like a bird. Fluttering over the surface of the waters. Now, just in that fact alone, by the way, God is already shown in two persons, isn't He? How far did I have to go in the Bible to see that God is more than one person? Two verses. And if I take what John read this morning, out of John's gospel not his own but you know the Apostle John Uh, chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 listen again to what it says in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God he was in the beginning with God and all things came into being through him and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being so John's gospel gives us the other element that Jesus himself was present in this beginning and when you hear that God speaks, for example, in, Tripp, in verse three, when he says, let there be light, he's saying what the Bible's saying is that the word was Christ. When we hear that there was a word said and things happened, it's not to suggest necessarily that God literally spoke, although he could have. It means that Christ himself did that work. He was the word. What made the light? The word, Jesus, the creator. All things are created by Christ. He was the word. That is being mentioned in chapter 1 of Genesis. Those words don't necessarily mean literal sound. It means the word of God, meaning Christ, the creator, the one who is in the Godhead, the creator of all things. So you have all three persons now represented in the opening verses of Genesis when you consider what the New Testament gives us as well. Looking at what we have at the beginning now, forgetting the gap theory, forgetting all that other stuff, what do we actually have? I want to imagine what it looked like. It probably looked a lot like today, gray and wet. And not exactly. If we look at the words in Hebrew, formless and void, that's tohu and bohu again. Those words stick with you because they sound funny. It literally means chaos. Those words mean chaos. The words tohu and bohu. Tohu means confusion or without meaning. Bohu means empty as in a vacuum. You have, according to scripture, the earth, or the word earth there really just means the world, the, the creation. Begins with something confusion or, or or without meaning and empty in a vacuum, and there was darkness over this deep. The word deep here literally is tehom, which means abyss. So the opening moments of creation, as God began, were completely chaotic, with no form, with no light, with a kind of vacuum or space. Deep, by the way, Tehom, can also mean deep water, like sea. But it became that later. The Jews always feared the sea. That's why they weren't seagoing people. Their view was the sea was like a picture to them of hell, of the abyss, of the deep. They started to use the word Tehom to describe the sea. But at this stage, the word only meant deep abyss, not water. And therefore, I don't want you to imagine a big rolling sea. I know that's the first thing that comes to mind based on the words, but that's not likely what we're seeing here. After all, water itself is not created. The seas are not created until later in the, in the second day of creation. There is no suggestion here necessarily that we're talking about a bunch of water because the text would imply formless, void, space. What's more likely here is that you are seeing the creation of space in the sense of space and time. The creation of a space, but yet, without, mat- without any form, without any real construct that we can understand, dark, empty space. The only thing that matches this description would be matter absent form or order. Matter without form and order. And then you see the spirit here moving or hovering over the deep. What you really sense here when you see those two pictures together, a formless void of matter and the spirit moving is to suggest that you have matter and the spirit becomes the energy for the matter. God putting energy into the creation through the movement of the spirit. That's interesting, if I'm right, because that understanding would match our own scientific understanding of how matter and energy are intimately connected. E equals MC squared. Energy equals matter times the speed of light squared. The only thing missing so far is light. Verse 3, then God said, let there be light. And there was light. E equals MC squared. You have God creating the foundations of all that must now come from it, matter, energy, and light, such that they are somehow, in a way we still don't understand, they're linked. Einstein could explain it mathematically, but he couldn't explain it existentially. (laughs) We still don't understand why those things, those properties relate in that way. We just know we can measure it and put an equation to it. But it becomes obvious from the opening verses of the text that God decided as he went about building this creation that this this basic rule, this basic algorithm for how the world itself functions would be the building blocks on which he could then construct all the order that we now take for granted that physicists are still trying to make sense of. Let there be light, he said, and there was light. In verse 4, God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning. One day. So the basic equation that explains all matter and energy in all the universe is consistent with the Bible's description of creation. One of the things I enjoy doing the most is I teach through the Bible and teach through Genesis particularly is showing those who have some doubt about whether they can accept the text of Scripture as literal, is showing how consistent it is with our measured and observed science. Not to say it's consistent with all the theories that are proposed by men who try to explain what they measure, but it is consistent with what we measure, with what is in place. Before anything existed, God created matter, formless and dark. He created it ex nihilo, which literally in the Latin means from nothing. Then he introduced energy. And then he spoke light into existence. And here you see in the fact that God is shown with his word speaking, you have the third person of the Trinity. Then he says something interesting. He says the light was good. He saw that the light was good. Saw, ra, it means he reflected upon, he concluded. It's not that he had to see it for himself. It's just, he considered it good. Good in Hebrew means beneficial. Not good versus bad. I mean, God can't create anything that's bad by definition. It's good in the sense of beneficial. That implies something, doesn't it? Why does God make something and then turn around and consider it beneficial? When you say something is beneficial, you imply a purpose for it, don't you? It begs a question. What's it beneficial for? And not just the light. He also created the darkness. Did you notice that? He named them light and dark, separated them. When you name something, by the way, it implies you have authority over it, you have sovereignty over it. He names them, and he says they are to be separate. Now, that should have raised an eyebrow. Now, if you're not into the mode of thinking like I think, that's probably healthy, actually. But if you're not thinking like I think here, uh, you may not ask some of the right questions. You need to ask a lot more questions than you might typically ask. One of those questions should be, how do I have light without the apparent source of light? Because the sun doesn't show up till day four. How do I have light but I don't have the sun yet? Where does it come from? Where does the light come from? And then the fact that he created darkness. You don't have to create darkness. You already had the darkness, right? You'd love, darkness is just when you don't have light. But it says here, he created it. In fact, if I go to Isaiah, I hear that uh, reaffirmed from Isaiah. Isaiah 45, verse 6. Isaiah speaking. This is God's word speaking. Men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun. That there is no one besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. The one, listen, forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. So we have two questions on the table, which, by the way, we will not answer today. I will do this continually through the study in the hope of keeping you coming back. (laughs) Why is it that light exists absent the sun? What does that tell us? What does that mean? Is it literal? Can we take it for what it says? And then, secondly, why did darkness have to be created? I can begin to answer at least one of those for you here, just so that you don't leave upset at me. God sets about here to create the world with light and dark from the beginning. And these features are present in the universe before there are celestial bodies. All right? In fact, as I said, the sun and the moon don't arrive till day four that leads us to discover an important pattern which i'm going to encourage you to see with me this morning and then use as we move forward through the days of creation it's a great pattern that is, Im- is Im- embedded in the text it's purposely here god is created in a certain way so that the pattern would be evident because the pattern helps us understand his purpose why is he doing it the way he's doing it you know people have often criticized the book of genesis as being unrealistic and therefore not possible to be literal on one basis perhaps more than any other. And that one basis is it's impossible that the, all the universe could be created in only six days. It's just too quick. It's, it's impossible to consider that all that we see and in, in, in experience could have come into being like that. That tells them perhaps more than anything that they can't believe Genesis. But the irony is they're asking the wrong question, right? The, the question is not why did it happen so quickly. The question is why did God take so long? That's a good question to ask. If you're asking that question, you're asking a question that will arrive at a very useful answer. Because that is the right question. Why did he take so long? If he could do it at all, then he didn't need six days to do it, right? If he has the power to make these things happen as they're described, then he could have done it like that, all at once. The fact that he didn't is a question in itself. And the answer to that question will help you understand his purpose. Why did he take six days? There's a good reason the pattern that begins to come out in the text that helps us answer that question of why is that for the first three days, God is spending his time, so to speak, creating spaces. And then in the last three days of creation, he takes time making the things that fill those spaces. We haven't gone very far in the text, obviously, but if you know the story, you remember it goes from space for light and dark, followed by space for water creatures, Uh, and air creatures and then lastly space for land creatures and then when we go back to days four through six it becomes sun moon stars fill the light and dark space birds and fish fill the sea space man and animals fill the earth space you know there's a real clear pattern there that seems very interesting why would he do it that way well that's the question we're here to answer over the next few weeks final thing for today is to try to help you understand why light and dark are being created Why does he need both? Well, I want you to listen to a couple of verses out of Scripture and see if the answer doesn't start to come up for yourself. Job 30, Job 30, verse 26. Job says, When I expected good, then evil came. I waited for light, but darkness came. What is God associating there for us? Light, dark, good, evil. That comparison by the way of light with good and dark with evil shows up all over the place. Remember Paul says we are not of the light of the di- of the night, we are of the day. Don't be in the night, be in the day. Christ was the light that came into the world, but the darkness did not understand it. You see how light and dark are constantly being used in the Bible to represent good and evil? Now, as he begins his creation on this day, is there evil in the world? Not yet. Not according to the story of Genesis. But God has determined that we need darkness in the world that we will experience even before there is evil. But that would suggest that God is already anticipating and therefore planning for what is about to happen in his creation. That evil will arrive at one day. And when it does, he is going to make sure that his world has in its design the things he needs to give us pictures and explanations of the difference between good and evil metaphors that were usefully present in the creation so that from right at the very beginning he was already prepped to tell us there's good, there's evil, there's light, there's dark. You want further proof that this is something he's doing strictly so that he has a useful tool in teaching us about evil? Well, consider what he does when he has a chance to do it a second time. When God gets the opportunity to design this world yet again and create a new heavens and new earth, start from scratch, do it any way he wants, what does he do the second time? In a world in which there is no sin, in which the enemy is no longer present in this new world that will be created, how does it get described then? Revelation 21, verse 4. Speaking about that time, John says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death, and therefore we know no sin. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And in his description of that time in Revelation 22, or in 21, It is said to be a time and a world in which there is no darkness. There is no night. Only daytime. So when there is a world to come in which there will no longer be sin to worry about, he will create a world that only has light. But in a world that he was creating here where he knew sin was going to come, he created it anticipating the need for a metaphor for evil. Now, that's where we're ending. But that's only the beginning. And... Every day of creation is equally rich with information about not just what was going on, but why. And where it's going to play into God's plan over history. And we're going to give it the proper attention. I will tell you that if you study Genesis 1 and 2, I guess, at this level, as best I can do it, every other book of the Bible will suddenly make better sense. Which is the way it's supposed to work. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father. I thank you, Lord, first for the patience of all that would listen this morning, because we all understand it's difficult to absorb a lot in a short time. It's difficult, Father, to remain still for a long time. But we also know, Father, just how important a rich study of your word can be in our own walk. Father, give us the patience and the the diligence to be here on a consistent basis and, and attentive throughout. But, Father, I pray that we'd also find opportunity to put it to use immediately. Even before we study past Chapter 1, I pray that you'd give us opportunity in our own walk with others to talk about the glory of your creation, the power of your Spirit at work in these things, the the meaning of it all, and ultimately tracing it to your Son and his sacrifice for sin. Let us be useful based on what we learn in uh, bringing you glory. Thank you for our church, as always. Thank you for the men and women who serve every week to make it possible for us to meet And if it be your will, Father, bring us back, perhaps with others. We pray these things in Jesus' name.